morning. Um, if you don't have, we've got lessons. We've also got a, a syllabus, um, kind of give you an idea of where we're going. And I, I was hesitant to, to hand it out. I just do this for my own purposes to kind of keep my own brain intact. But I went ahead and handed it out. The key word, of course, being tentative New Testament syllabus. Because, for example, week one has already been scotched. Um, <laughs> how we got the New Testament, how we know its accuracy, I've decided to roll part of that into week seven and part of it at the end of this. I've gotten some emails. Howard sent me one about uh, where we go from here. And uh, uh, I uh, am excited about where we go from here, even though we'll be in the New Testament, God willing, for about uh, uh, a year. Um, so uh, if you've got ideas on where we go from here, uh, if you're interested in sticking around in, in our class at least, then uh, email me. Don't hesitate because uh, uh, I start work on these things kind of early and get my brain kind of ginning on how we can do it. Um, now, having said all of that then, this morning, what happened? It's not working. <clears throat> it's not working? How come? It worked for this morning. Yeah? It worked when we first picked it up. And it wouldn't go? It wouldn't go? You're going to work on it? I'm just going to start. Yeah. We're blazing trails. If you're waiting on us, you're backing up. It also means I don't need this little puppy right now. Of course, I have no clue what my lesson is without the outline, but... Um, this morning we're doing Matthew. We're doing Matthew as an overview. The book of Matthew is the first of four Gospels in the New Testament. So if you've got your Bibles, open it up to a New Testament. Do we have Bibles for people who don't? We're getting some. If not, we should have some. Um, NIV study Bibles are what we're using. The goal of this class is biblical literacy. We've been through the Old Testament. We've been through the Apocrypha. And now we are set and ready for the New Testament. Now here is my... Um, heart's desire as your teacher in this class. It is, um, how many of you have ever read any part of the New Testament before? Okay, that's good. We're a New Testament church. Um, the, the, uh, 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 the New Testament is something that uh, uh, is, is going to be a lot more familiar to most of you than parts of the Old Testament that we covered. But it is uh, my sincere hope as your teacher and my dedication to you, and I give you my commitment on this, as I prepare for class, whether you're a seminary graduate like Lewis or whether you're um, uh, someone uh, brought up uh, in a Christian home or whether you're someone who's just walked in the doors of this church and has never heard the Bible before. My goal is to make sure every Sunday there is a, at least a nugget, uh, a, a gold nugget of, of something, some information that you may not have had before. Uh, so even as we study things that you've read about and learned about and heard about all of your life, uh, I, it is my hope to offer you something in addition to our general biblical literacy that you haven't had before. Um, we're not getting any... Okay, well, you just keep going. Y'all, if we don't have PowerPoint, then this is good old-fashioned teaching. Um, the book of Matthew is the first of the Gospels. The Gospels we divide up into two different kinds. Some are called synoptic gospels, and we'll talk about that term later. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's the Gospel of John, which exists by itself. Each gospel was written for a specific reason. Um, the gospels did not just occur because someone wanted a general history of Jesus Christ. Each gospel was kind of tailored towards some particular need. And so as we look for at this morning at the Gospel of Matthew, what I want to do is give a little bit of background information, but then give an overview of the whole Gospel. 
After this morning, we're going to break it apart over the next few weeks in some bite-sized uh, nuggets. Next week, we'll deal with the Incarnation. The following week, the Temptations and Sermon on the Mount. The following week, the Parables. The following week, the Passion, Crucifixion, and Resurrection with the Commission to the Apostles. But this morning, we're doing it in one fell swoop. Before we do it, I want to start with some basic questions that we've been asking as we go through each of these books. The first one being, who wrote Matthew? Well, that sounds like it'd be an easy answer. What would be your first guess? That's a pretty good one. That's my best guess too. Um, Matthew itself as a book does not say. The book itself does not say who wrote it. It's church tradition that gives us Matthew as the author. Now, when I say church tradition, I am not referencing what uh, Damon thinks from what he was told by some his mentor, pastor, who had been told by his pastor, and it's been passed on from pastor to pastor uh, since, you know, Matthew. No, when I say what church tradition tells us, there are certain church figures, we call them church fathers. They're the... Who wrote Matthew? Talk about your timing. There's no reference within the book. Early church tradition says that it was Matthew. Irenaeus was an early church father. Um, Papias was an early church father. Origen was an early church father. Papias, for example, was a student of Polycarp. Oh, who's Polycarp? Polycarp was the main disciple of the Apostle John. Okay, so that gives you a generational perspective. The Apostle John, who wrote John and the epistles of John and the book of Revelation, his main student was Polycarp, and it was Polycarp who took over in Ephesus when John died. So Polycarp's main student was this fellow named Papias. And there's some people think Papias even heard John before John died. Probably not. But Papias, for example, attributes Matthew to writing a gospel. And uh, we don't have a lot of... Pap Papias wrote at least five books. We don't have his books, but we have Papias quoted by a fellow named Eusebius, who was the first guy to write a church history book. And we have Eusebius's church history book. It was written in the 300s A.D. So very early church authority attributes this gospel to Matthew. And I think that's uh, fair for us to assume. Some modern scholars and critics do not believe that. Why? I'll deal with when we look at the synoptic issues in Mark, because it's better suited for there. When was Matthew written? Again, because we're uncertain, um, we're guessing to some degree. Uh, I believe Matthew was written somewhere in the 50 to 60 range. I believe Matthew was probably written before Peter died. Uh, I definitely believe Matthew was written before the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in 70 A.D. with Masada. The purpose of Matthew as a book is such that if it had been written after the fall of Jerusalem, the fall of Jerusalem would have uh, uh, figured more prominently somehow within that book. Um, was Matthew written in Greek like we read it or Aramaic? Papias in other tradition tells us Matthew wrote a gospel, the Apostle Matthew wrote a gospel in Aramaic, which is the Hebrew language. The book that we read is written in Greek. All of our New Testament is in Greek, except for the two little phrases that one's in Latin and one is in Aramaic. But the, the, the books themselves were written in Greek. Uh, Matthew, as you read the Greek, if you read Greek and Hebrew or Greek and Aramaic, you can tell 
This probably is not a translation of an Aramaic gospel. This is probably really written in Greek. Um, it is my belief and, and substantial others that Matthew probably wrote an Aramaic gospel because for the first 15 years, history tells us, Matthew taught the Christians in Palestine. And after 15 years, Matthew moved from Palestine and started teaching in outer lands, Ethiopia, Syria, Macedonia, and others. And there, the Aramaic gospel that Matthew had written would be no good because those people spoke predominantly Greek. And so it makes sense that Matthew would have rewritten his gospel in Greek uh, uh, for those people in those places. Why was Matthew written? And this is the important part of class today because as we give an overview of the book, you need to understand before we tear it apart the big picture. We want everything in context when we approach the Bible. You take something out of context and you begin heresy. Everything needs to be taken in the context of the Bible itself. Why was Matthew written? It was written, first of all, to encourage and to confirm those Jewish Christians in their faith. Remember, we've just left the Old Testament and we dealt with that intertestamental period and we've got a lot of Jews who are trying really hard not to become Greek people, not to bow to Greek culture, but to keep their Hebrew Jewish heritage. And in the middle of this comes this man out of Nazareth named Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua. And Jesus comes out of Nazareth as a Jew and the Jews believe that this Jesus is their Messiah. This Jesus gets crucified and a number of Jews continue to believe this Jesus is Messiah. Now, in the early church, in the very early church, if you were a Christian, you were generally a Jew. And in the very, very start, where Paul and Peter are preaching to the, the Christians and to the unsaved, they're going to the Jewish synagogues to do it. Christianity was the, the goal of Paul and Peter was to see all of Judaism embrace Jesus as Messiah. And Christianity just be the fruition of Jewishness. Because that's really what it is. And those Jews that did not accept Jesus as the fruition of Judaism didn't become the Jews that we have. They are merely the unbelievers. True Christianity is first and foremost a Jewish faith. That's why all the rubble and hubbub over the passion being anti-Semitic seems to me to be a bit of hooey. Because Christianity, I mean, the guy getting killed is a Jew. Christianity itself is a Jewish faith first and foremost. So Matthew is writing to confirm those Jews who believe in Jesus as Messiah. And to encourage them because they were being persecuted by the same power structure within the Jewish faith that had Jesus executed. Okay? Second reason it's being written is to refute those elements of Judaism that oppose Jesus as Messiah. And in that vein, number three, to show that Jesus Christ is consistent with the Old Testament. Jesus was not a contradiction. Jesus did not contradict Judaism. Jesus did not come to destroy Judaism. When a Jew embraces Jesus, he doesn't turn his back on Judaism. Biblically speaking, he embraces his Judaism. 
And that's what Joel Chernoff would tell you if he were here this morning. Those of us who are Christians are being grafted onto a tree that was already there. Those of us who are Gentile Christians. Because the tree is one that came from Abraham and David and Jesus Messiah. Okay? If that's the purpose of the book, then look at the theme of the book. What Matthew is saying in this book is that Jesus Christ is the Old Testament Messiah in His birth, in His ministry, in His death, in His resurrection. The Old Testament, the whole book of, that we have, all of the books that constitute the Old Testament, we're saying in Adam, man fell from God, a Messiah has been promised to offer redemption to mankind, to bring man back into fellowship with God, to take care of the sin that started in the garden and has been passed on through the gene pool to every one of us to take care of the condemnation that came from that sin that we all live in, to take care of the bondage of sin, the way sin just gets a stranglehold on you and seems to dominate and control you, to take that sin and to find release from that bondage, to conquer it. And the whole Old Testament's been saying, someone's coming who's going to do that. Someone's coming who's going to do that. And all of Israel has been called into holiness in God in anticipation of someone coming. And the theme of Matthew is, Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament. He, Jesus, is the target the Old Testament has been pointing to. Now, time out. Greek term, de jure. Christ. Christos in the Greek means anointed one. Okay? Did we know that? Okay. And we know the Hebrew word for that is Messiah or Mashiach. So we anglicize the Greek word Christos into Christ. We anglicize the Hebrew word Mashiach into Messiah. But when we say Jesus Christ or when you read it in Matthew, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. That's the first verse. That's Yeshua Hamashiach in, in, in Hebrew. That's Jesus the Messiah. And Christ is not His last name. It's His title. Okay. So, with that, Jesus Christ, by definition, is Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. He's the Old Testament Messiah in His birth, His ministry, His death, His resurrection. That's what Matthew has written to tell you. I'll tell you, Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than Mark, Luke, and John combined. Did you know that? Matthew quotes the Old Testament more than the other three Gospels combined because Matthew is written to Jews to explain to them Jesus is Messiah from the Old Testament. That's who He is. It starts out, section 1, Jesus is Messiah in His genealogy and His birth. As we read through Matthew, and what I'm going to do is just hold my Bible here and we're going to do a quick overview of Matthew. And I'll kind of tell you where I am as we're going along if you want to follow along and circle with your pen. But look at Matthew and see if he doesn't do a good job doing exactly what I said. Start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew begins, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why do we care what the genealogy of Jesus was? We care because the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus would come from the seed of David. 
would come from the seed of Abraham. God said from Abraham, I will give birth to someone. In, in his seed, all of the nations will be blessed. It's going to come through the seed of Abraham. And Abraham, he'll give the birth. And then it's linked through Judah. It's linked through David. So the first thing we need to know if we're Jews is that Jesus Christ in genealogy is Messiah. And His genealogy can be traced back to Abraham. Then you look at chapter 1, verse 18, and we start with the birth of Jesus Christ. The birth itself fulfills multiple Old Testament prophecies. Verse 22, Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The prophet here is Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 7:14. quote, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the birth of Jesus takes place as the Old Testament prophesied in Isaiah. The Magi come in chapter 2 to visit Jesus. And when they come, they say to the chief priests, and they say to, to everybody, Where, we've been coming from the east, we know Messiah is being born. Where do the Scriptures say He's going to be born? So we know where to go. And the chief priests and the scribes and the teachers of the law do not have to say, well, time out. Let me go do a web search to find out. Or, hang on, I got this in a book. I'm going to find it. No. They're able to tell the Magi immediately. They knew their Old Testament. They were teachers of the Old Testament. And so they quote straight out of Micah 5, verse 2. But for you, Bethlehem Ephratah, from you will come forth one who's going to be the ruler of Judah, the shepherd of my people Israel. So the Old Testament in Micah says, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be born from Bethlehem. And that's where the wise men go. And the wise men find Him in Bethlehem. And after they do... Uh, in a dream, God comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, take Jesus and Mary and go to Egypt. And Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. Why? Well, in part, to fulfill the prophecy that Jeremiah gave. Or, I mean, that Hosea gave. Um, uh, and Jeremiah. We'll get to Jeremiah in a minute. But Hosea says, out of Egypt I called my son. In Hosea 11.1. 1. And Matthew says, so Jesus goes to Egypt. And Jesus is there because Herod knows that Messiah is being born and decides since he can't figure out which child it is just to kill all the babies under the age of two. And this is fulfilling the prophecy in Jeremiah 31. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning. Rachel re weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. He had all the boys two years and under killed. And that is to fulfill prophecy. The birth fulfills prophecies as Jesus is called out of Egypt, as Jesus goes into Nazareth. And Jesus is called out as a Nazarene. And that's where Jesus comes. Jesus is uh, not only Messiah in His genealogy and birth, but Jesus is also Messiah, Matthew tells us, in His ministry. As we look at the ministry of Jesus, it starts out with Him being prepared for His ministry with John the Baptist coming. And John the Baptist says... A voice, uh, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near in Matthew 3. And Matthew says, this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. You see, this is Matthew again. He's saying that, that not only was Jesus' genealogy, 
Old Testament Messiah. Not only was Jesus' birth Old Testament Messiah, but the preparation for Jesus' ministry, Old Testament Messiah. And he goes to Isaiah and he quotes there. And all the people come out from Jerusalem to John the Baptist and they're confessing their sins to him. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we're already starting to get a sniff of what's to come. The power structure will have nothing to do with John the Baptist and they're challenging him. John the Baptist himself says, here I am and I'm baptizing you with water, but there's one coming after me. I'm not even qualified to tie his or thong on his sandal. And he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's what I'm telling you about because that's what I'm getting ready for. And in the midst of this, Jesus comes to John the Baptist. And Jesus says, I want you to baptize me. John the Baptist says, me baptize you. That's crazy. Um, um, uh, you, you, <laughs> I need you to baptize me, Jesus. Jesus says, no, no, this is to fulfill righteousness. So let's do it. And Jesus is baptized and the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And in quoting Psalm 2, God hears, or the voice from heaven is God saying, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, whom I love. And with that, Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, I don't know if you've realized it yet, but we got a little theme going on here. We now have God's chosen in Jesus, right? And God's chosen because of Herod's atrocity is in Egypt. And what happens to him from Egypt? He comes out of Egypt. And Matthew tells the story of him coming out of Egypt and he goes into the water. And out of the water he comes and then he goes into the wilderness where he doesn't eat for he's hungry for how long? 40 days. Are you seeing a parallel here to the Old Testament of Israel? Israel comes out of Egypt. Israel is baptized through the waters of the Red Sea. Israel goes out into the wilderness where they hunger for 40 years instead of 40 days. And this same thing we're seeing in Jesus. And so Jesus gets prepared in His ministry. Um, let me get caught up here. He's baptized. He goes through the temptation period in the wilderness unlike the nation of Israel who stays in the wilderness 40 years because they fall to temptation. Jesus surpasses the nation of Israel and does not fall to temptation. And so Jesus is in the wilderness for His 40 days, but He comes out. The temptations of Jesus are ones that are scriptural. Satan at times quoting Scripture, but Jesus coming right back to Deuteronomy, quoting the law, quoting the law, quoting the law. And Matthew has him quoting the law, quoting the law. Because Jesus, Matthew wants us to remember, Jesus is not a contradiction of the Old Testament. He is a fulfillment of what all of the last year and a half we've been studying pointed to. He is a fulfillment. And Jesus becomes Messiah to the nation of Israel. If you look at Jesus' ministry, Matthew starts it in chapter 4, verse 12. And Matthew says, Jesus starts out, and Jesus uh, leaves Nazareth, he leaves, uh, living in Capernaum, by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And, and Matthew says, the whole reason this was done is to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said. And he quotes Isaiah 9, 12. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned. And so Jesus moves through the land preaching in fulfillment, specifically, hand in glove, of Isaiah 9. 
Jesus calls His disciples. He says, come, I'll make you fishers of men. Jesus heals the sick. And then Jesus goes up on a mountain and He gives a sermon. And the sermon is Jesus expounding on the law. And you still see our Old Testament parallel with Israel? Israel is called through the Red Sea. They go into the wilderness. They go to the mountain. Moses ascends the mountain and brings the law down to the people. Jesus ascends the mountain. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Wants us to understand Jesus didn't come to abolish, didn't come to contradict. Jesus is what the Old Testament has been singing about for a thousand years. And so Jesus gets up and the law that Jesus gives is a little bit um, more complete Jesus starts out by saying in 5.17, Don't think I've come to abolish the Old Testament, the law or the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And He makes it real clear to the people. And then Jesus has a wonderful explanation of the law because the people had taken the law and reduced it down to little finite rules of do's and don'ts and totally left the heart out of it. And Jesus says what God's concerned about is not physically what you're doing right now. God's concerned about where your heart lies. It's like Damon said this morning. The issue is not, are you committing adultery? The issue is, do you have the lust in your heart or are you leaving yourself the openings there? The issue is not, Jesus says, are you killing your brother? The issue is, are you despising him and hating him in your heart? Because that's where the murder proceeds from. The issue is not, um, are you divorcing your spouse wrong? Jesus takes it much further and says, are you taking your marriage lightly? Are you disregarding, are you not putting into your marriage what you ought to be putting into it? Jesus says it's not a question of whether or not you violate an oath. It's a question of whether or not you can be trusted at all to say what you mean and to mean what you say. Your yes ought to be yes and your no ought to be no. It should not be, well, technically, I did not give an oath, so I'm allowed to violate that. No. That's the difference between living by a technicality and having your heart right with God. And Jesus says the law is not a list of technicalities. The law is behavior that should be motivated by a heart right with God. And if you're not following the law, the problem is your heart with God and you need to get your heart right with the Lord. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth may be the way the criminal code was written for Israel, but it was never intended to be our personal code of vengeance. Jesus says, you, you're supposed to love your enemies, not love your friends. You love your friends, yes. But you love your enemies too and you pray for them. And, and if you remember, those of you who heard the Apocrypha lesson, we talked about how during that time period, the Jews had evolved what they called the three pillars of Judaism, which was your tithing, your praying, and your fasting. And if you wanted to be holy and righteous, you did those three things. Those were the three important things. Jesus addresses those now in the Sermon on the Mount. And He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness, your three pillars of righteousness before men to be seen by them. The reason you're supposed to be righteous is for God, not for show. When you're giving to someone who needs it, you're tithing, don't trumpet it. Don't tell everybody, look how righteous I am. I gave my money. 
You're not doing it to be seen by men. You're doing it for the Lord. When you're praying, you're not praying for men. Don't say these wonderful prayers for people to hear. If you're in a restaurant, you're not bowing your head in prayer so that people can see, oh, they must go to Champion Forest Baptist. Look how pious they are. They're praying. The purpose of the prayer is not show. The purpose of the prayer is to acknowledge the Lord. So the pillars, the giving, the praying, the fasting. I know I must look weak today. Excuse me while I teach. I fasted to make this lesson better for you. No. You don't fast for show. If you're fasting, you fast for the Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying. So Jesus says the three pillars, they're for the Lord. Your desires, He says, are supposed to be on heaven, not on earth. You shouldn't be living motivated by things around here. Things around here just rust and fall away. You need to set your sights on the kingdom of God and His righteousness and live for those things. And while you're at it, quit judging everybody. Judge yourself. Look at your own shortcomings, not those of others. And seek the Lord in His kingdom as you do that with yourself. And remember to treat people the way you want to be treated. And a final note, this is not the popular way. This is the narrow gate. The popular way is to reduce things down to a list of do's and don'ts. And here are 75 things, and if you do these, you can feel really good about yourself. That's the popular way. Jesus says this is not popular, but this is what God wants. And Jesus stands up and preaches a ministry and a law as Messiah. And the people are amazed, Matthew said. They're amazed because Jesus didn't teach like their teachers. He taught like someone who had authority. And he did have authority. See, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. When God has a son, what is he? He's God. When a dog has a pup, it's a dog. When a cat has an offspring, it's a cat. When God has a son, it's God. Okay? And that's what Matthew is saying. So with that, Jesus then starts being recorded by Matthew as healing countless people. He heals a man with leprosy. says, be clean. There is a, a centurion who comes and, and has Jesus heal one of his people. Jesus heals many, Matthew says, to fulfill what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 4. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus had authority over illness because Jesus was Messiah. But Jesus goes further. Jesus not only has authority over illness, Jesus has authority over the weather. He calms the storm. Jesus not only has authority over illness, not only has authority over the weather, He has authority over the demons. And He casts out the demons. Jesus continues to heal and to answer people's questions. He sends out His twelve apostles. And He does all of this. And in the middle of this, in about chapter 11, we get word that John the Baptist uh, is sending, saying, you know, Jesus, just confirm for me who you really are. And, John sa and Jesus says, go back and tell John that the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And Jesus is quoting over and over and over here the Old Testament prophecies of what Messiah would do. 
And then Jesus says to His followers, His disciples, that John the Baptist is the one that Malachi wrote about in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, where Malachi said, I will send My messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way for you. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus, John the Baptist goes ahead because Malachi had prophesied it. God, 450 years earlier, said, John the Baptist is going to come prepare the way for the Lord. And he does. And then Jesus says, and I love this. This is the kind of stuff you get when you do the whole overview of Matthew. You get a different flavor than if you study it story at a time. That's why we're doing it this way. Jesus says, I come to me, you who, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember that? You've heard that before. Take my yoke upon you for it's light and easy. And Jesus says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Come to me. And then immediately after that, Jesus' apostles pick some grain on the Sabbath and the Pharisees just go ballistic because Jesus is violating the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath a day of? Rest. Okay, so the Jesus who just said, come to me and I'll give you rest, then explains to the Pharisees, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of rest. Don't come to me about violating the Sabbath. I just told you I'm going to give you a rest. If you want to come to me, you ought to be coming not saying, you picked grain on the Sabbath. Violator, violator. You violated the Ten Commandments. You ought to be coming to me saying, Lord, can I really have your rest? Because my yoke is easy. And you come to Jesus, not finger pointing at Jesus, but you come to learn of Him and learn about the Sabbath and learn about the Lord of the Sabbath. Then the people said, yeah, but when Jesus does these things, when He casts out demons, he's, He must be satanic. And Jesus says, no, you're looking for Me. Don't look for Me in the teachings about Satan. Look for Me in the story of Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, I'll be in the earth for three days, but I will be resurrected again. I'm not the arm of Satan. I'm the prophecy of Jonah. I am what the New Testament or the Old Testament's been pointing to. Jesus as Messiah starts teaching in parables. Chapter 13 has the parable of the sower. And, and the people are, are seeing, and some people see with God's vision, but other people don't. And this is in fulfillment of Isaiah 6 verse 9. that says the people won't understand. But Jesus continues. He teaches the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the parable of the yeast. And Jesus quotes Psalm 78 and says, this was fulfilled. What I'm doing here is a fulfillment of Psalm 78 too. I will open my mouth in parables and utter things hidden since the creation of the world. And with that, Jesus starts to explain the parables to His disciples. In chapter 14, we read about John the Baptist being beheaded. And as John the Baptist is beheaded, Jesus is very concerned. Jesus goes off for quiet time. But the quiet time doesn't really last because a multitude comes to Him and Jesus' heart has compassion. And 5,000 people are there and the apostles say, we've got to send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let's feed them. We don't have the food. Did God have the food to feed the multitudes in the Old Testament? When they're in the wilderness? God delivers with manna. God delivers with quail. Bread and meat. And Jesus does the same. He's got some bread. They've got some fish. Five. Oh, that ought to do them. It's just 5,000 people. And so five loaves of bread and two fish. Jesus blesses it and Jesus feeds them. Now Moses had to divide the Red Sea, right? 
Does Jesus? No. Immediately after feeding the masses, Jesus is again biding his quiet time. There's the disciples head out and a storm on the sea. Jesus doesn't divide the waters. He just walks right over them. This Jesus is Messiah. He's the culmination of everything that Old Testament has been talking about for all this time. People come, the Pharisees and teachers of the law come, and they try and do a debate off with Jesus on Scripture. Well, how come your people aren't washing their hands before they eat? And Jesus' response to them is, um, look, you guys are so far off. You people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. You worship me in vain. And Jesus quotes Isaiah 29. And while these Pharisees and teachers of the law have no regard for Jesus, a Canaanite woman, a pagan, comes to Jesus and has enough faith to see healing. A pagan comes to Jesus. Jesus says to His people then, so who do you think I am? And Peter says, you are Messiah, Son of the living God. And Jesus says, that's right. And blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this. This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood. You just heard the Lord. Because that's from God. And Jesus then, at this point, as Messiah changes, and we start seeing Matthew write about Jesus in the face of His crucifixion. And as He does, Jesus says, I'm going to be suffering. And the two greatest men in the Old Testament meet Jesus on a mountain. Moses and Elijah come to Jesus' bidding. Jesus is not a contradiction of the Old Testament. Jesus is a fulfillment. Jesus is not something lesser. Christianity is not a lesser cult of Judaism. It is what Judaism was meant to be. It is Jesus that brought Moses and Elijah to the Mount of Transfiguration. And so we have them there. And Jesus starts foretelling His resurrection, that He's going to die, that He's going to be resurrected. And in the process, Jesus gives some last teaching to His apostles here. He says to them, hey, pay your taxes because you don't want to offend people. And oh, by the way, do you know who the greatest people are going to be in the kingdom of heaven? People like these children. Um, I had someone say to me the other day, Lanier, um, you're too busy in your life because... It was David Eagleman. You hear me talk about David. I said to David the other day, he called me Friday. I said, David, I thought you don't love me anymore. You never call. And he said, Lanier, I can't get to you. You have too many layers of people that keep me from getting you. I have to call and talk to her. She has to pass me through to her, who has to pass me through here. And then if I'm fortunate enough to make it through all of those layers, I get to you if you want to talk to me. I thought, well, that's not very nice. And I thought, it's kind of true, but it's not very nice. And, you know, I thought, because I was thinking about this lesson, I thought, you know, Jesus had layers of handlers. And the little children wanted to play with Jesus. And Jesus' handlers would get in the way. And Jesus looked at his handlers and said, get out of the way. He didn't want his handlers there. Jesus wanted the direct connection. It's a lesson to me. Jesus wanted the direct connection. And the creator of the universe, the most important human being who ever walked on this planet, would take time out to stop and play with children that weren't even his own. And Jesus says, 
that's the kind of heart you need to have, the heart like these children. Maybe you need to be spending some more time with them too and humble yourself like this child. And Jesus says you need to start forgiving people. Understand it with the parable of the lost sheep. If a brother sins against you, if a servant's been unmerciful, you forgive, you forgive, you forgive, you forgive. That's the heart you're to have. And Jesus gets His apostles ready for His crucifixion to understand the heart of Jesus as well as the actions of Jesus. We don't understand the crucifixion if we think of it only as Jesus paying the price for our sins and doing something mechanical for us. A mechanical passion is a half passion. What Jesus wants the people to understand before His crucifixion is not just the mechanics of Him dying for their sins, but the heart that motivates it. The heart that wants to be like a child and wants to understand children. The heart that sees that forgiveness is the most important aspect of anything you can bring to a relationship. And people who have hard hearts in their marriages, He says, are people who have hard hearts with their children are not seeing it. And when the rich young ruler comes and wants to be right before God because of his actions, Jesus pierces to the marrow of the bone of the man's heart because his heart would not help the needy and the poor. And Jesus says, you may be thinking you're following every law in the world, but if your heart is not right before God, don't ask me what you can do to earn your eternal life because you'll never earn it. You need to get it from me. Even the best fall short. And Jesus ends this part with a teaching of a parable about all these different people doing all this different work. And the point is, everybody needs the forgiveness of the Lord. Some more than others, but all need it. And with that, Jesus starts into the crucifixion and He's rejected as Messiah. He comes into Jerusalem. Matthew says, see, uh, to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, and he quotes Zechariah 9, say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus comes in and the people are crying out, as prophesied in Psalm 118, 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus goes into the temple. He clears the temple consistent with the prophecy in Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. It's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. The children are crying out to Jesus, love and adoration. Jesus says, this is what you've read in Psalm 8-2, from the lips of children and infants, you've ordained praise. Jesus walks by, sees a fig tree that's not productive. He curses the fig tree, it withers. Because Jesus has authority over the plants. But Jesus goes further. After Jesus curses the fig tree and it withers, the people in the temple courts start questioning Jesus and His authority. And Jesus says, I have authority over plants. I have authority over peoples. I have authority, period. Yet you are going to reject Me. You will still reject Me and all My authority. And this is consistent with Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone because I will be the stone that builds the finished work of God in spite of your rejection. And so with that, Jesus announces His seven woes on the people. After He announces His seven woes on the people, we see Jesus taking the destruction of Jerusalem and the second coming and prophesying about it in Matthew chapter 24. We don't want to end there. We want to see in Jesus' uh, uh, passion, His resurrection and commission, He's anointed. He is anointed uh, uh, and after His anointment at Bethany, Judas betrays Him. There is the Lord's Supper 
which itself is an Old Testament ritual God put into place where Jesus is the fulfillment. The whole purpose of the Passover is that God would pass over His people while, other, while, while death visited the others. And I, I want to get to the end of this and we'll, we're almost there. Jesus then predicts that Peter will deny Him. Zechariah 13.7 is fulfilled. Jesus goes into Gethsemane. Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin. Peter does, in fact, deny Jesus. Judas hangs himself. And then Jesus is called before Pilate. And Pilate's in the practice of releasing someone. And Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is there. And Pilate says to the people, Who would you like me to release to you? And do you know what the people yell? Barabbas. That's two Aramaic words put together. Bar means son, like Simon Bar Jonah. Bar, Abba, Father. The people cry out, release the son of the Father. Now they were calling for the man Barabbas. But even that man's name is placed right. And when Pilate says, well, then what am I going to do with Jesus? Who really is the Son of the Father, I might add. What am I going to do with Jesus? The people yell, crucify Him. And Pilate says, why? He hadn't done anything. Do you know what the people say? His blood be on us and our children. And what they cried out to crucify the Lord is the cry of every Christian. Because without the blood of Jesus on us and our children, we have no life. The Son of the Father. And Matthew's not putting this in there accidentally. Matthew spoke Aramaic. He wrote an Aramaic gospel. He knows what the Aramaic meaning of Barabbas is. He knows what it means for the blood to be on us and our children. Jesus is on the cross and they, they gamble for His clothes. That's out of Psalm 22. Also out of Bob Dylan's Blood on the Tracks. I think Psalm 22 came first. And then Jesus is lying on the cross and He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the start of that psalm where they gamble for the clothes. Psalm 22. That's verse, Psalm 22, verse 1. And what we're being told by Matthew is Jesus dies is buried, is in a tomb that's guarded, and in spite of the guarding, is resurrected, comes to life, and commissions His apostles to go out and proclaim Him as Messiah. The whole point of this book that, that has been driven from verse 1 to the very end with verse 20 of chapter 28 is that Jesus is Messiah. Do you see that? You get the whole sweeping flow of the book before we break it apart? Then let's get to points for home. Number one, Jesus is historical. This was a real event. This was a real man. This really happened. God really became flesh and dwelt among us. Number two, Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And there should be no doubt in our minds. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy over and over and over again. And everything else pales in significance to our Lord Jesus and what He has done. This is the consummation of what we've spent a year and a half studying in Jesus Christ. This is what we get the joy of looking at over the next year. Would you pray with me, please?
Lord, we thank You so much in the way You've worked through history. It's obvious to us as we read. Lord, we read writings that were put together over a thousand year time span by countless different people. And yet consistent in all of them, we see Your finger moving with great consistency. And we rejoice before You. And we pray You'll continue to open our eyes to see this and that You will help us see Your reality and who Jesus is and jolt us out of the pettiness of this world in our lives. Lord, please get our focus off of us. Please get our focus off of our weary world concerns. And would You please elevate our eyes to see You, the author and perfecter, of our salvation. We honor You not only as God, but as our Father and our Lord. And it is through our Messiah, Jesus, that we talk to You. Amen.